0: Hey everyone, this is Mark in Chicago, bringing you a new episode of Meteorite. In movies, we take a look at Thor: The Dark World. In music, we look at the busy fall release schedule with reviews of new albums from The Arcade Fire, Korn, Sleigh Bells, Panic of the Disco, Avril Lavigne, and Katy Perry. Plus, a quick look at Christopher Titus's new stand-up show out on the road now. Here we go. It seems like it's never quite like- i just needed to make sure you were real it's been a very
1: strange day i am jane wh- <clears throat> where were you where were you heimdall cannot see you i was right here where you left me i was waiting and then i was crying and then i went out looking for you you said you were coming back i know i know but the bifrost was destroyed the nine realms erupted into chaos wars were raging marauders were pillaging i had to put an end to the slaughter as excuses go, it's not terrible. But I saw you on TV. You were, you were in New York. Jane, I fought to protect you from the dangers of my world, but I was wrong. I was a fool. I believe that fate brought us together.
0: Thor returns in Thor... Hold on. Thor returns in Thor, the Dark World. Yeah, that's better. Okay. Thor, Odin, Jane Foster, and the rest of the gang are back in a post-Avengers the movie world. Thor 2 picks up where the Avengers left off, with Loki in chains, the Tesseract back in holding, and Thor and his warring buddies at the beginning of this film returning order to the Nine Realms. Earth is one of the realms. Because Asgard lost control of them after the Biofrost Bridge was destroyed in Thor 1. Now the thing is with these superhero movies, it's not the overall plot that makes these movies work, it's in the details. The overall plot for Thor The Dark World is the Dark Elves, led by Malekith, seeks an ultimate evil weapon known as the Aether. It's this red glowing cloud thing that will superpower Malekith and give him the ability to turn out the lights for the Nine Realms. They like darkness, hence why they are called the Dark Elves. Will Thor and his crew be able to save the universe? Well, you got to see it to find out. But let's go into the important parts of the movie, like how hot Cat Dennings is. Yeah, okay, okay, the the other details. All right. Now, even though Thor 2 is a sequel to Thor 1, Thor 2 takes place in what is called Phase 2 of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or MCU. The Thor, Captain America, Hulk, and Iron Man movies are the main umbrellas in this uh, universe, where these heroes are the leads, and characters like Nick Fury, Hawkeye, Black Widow, and others can weave in and out of. In Phase 1, we got Iron Man 1 and 2, The Incredible Hulk, uh, 2003's Hulk is not included, Thor, and Captain America the First Avenger. And this was capped off with the Avengers movie. Iron Man 3 is the supposed start of Phase 2, but that movie, even though it takes place after the Avengers seems more about wrapping up Robert Downey Jr.'s time as Iron Man instead of moving the MCU forward. Thor 2 has the feel of picking up where the Avengers left off, since the Avengers movie was mostly pushed along by the events that happened in Thor 1. Now why am I going into all of this? Well, all of these movies are tying closer and closer together. You don't have to see Iron Man 2 to understand Thor 1, but it helps. Also, because Loki was the main villain of the Avengers movie and his repercussions are dealt with in Thor 2... Now, the only important person to not return from Thor 1 is director Kenneth Branagh. When Branagh was first announced as director of Thor 1, it came as a bit of a shock. Mr. Shakespeare directing a comic book movie? Well, Branagh was a perfect fit for the Thor movie. Thor's characters could have come right out of Henry V, which Branagh directed. Minus the lasers, the characters of Henry V and Thor fought with swords and hammers, drank ale, feasted, and lived in a kingdom. Perfect match. Brenna didn't didn't return for Thor too because as much fun as it is to direct these comic book movies, they take years to produce from start to finish. The actors can move on once the cameras stop, but the director needs to stay to see the movie through post-production, and with heavy use of digital special effects, that can take up to another year. So Brenna stepped aside, and Alan Taylor stepped in. Alan Taylor was a decent choice to direct Thor too. His most recent directing job was for HBO's Game of Thrones. Huh, perfect match. Now this is where all that MCU interconnecting explanation comes back. Brenna, with his Shakespeare background, gave the characters in Thor 1, especially the scenes in Asgard, a Shakespearean heft with them when they interacted with each other. Alan Taylor comes from a TV background, albeit an HBO background. He directed episodes of The Sopranos, Oz, Rome, Sex and the City. Now, mind you, all great shows, but even though it's HBO, it's still serialized TV. And the director more or less has to do what the showrunner wants. That's the guy who really calls the shots on TV. Now, I'm giving Thor The Dark World three stars. It was very entertaining. But to give it three stars is a bit of a push. It's noticeable that Branda didn't direct. Like with X-Men and kick-ass directors Brian Singer and Matthew Vaughn, Branna had laid such a great groundwork that the Thor 2 director just needed to copy what Branda did and they'll be fine. And they more or less did in Thor 2. But the characters don't have the heft that they did in Thor 1. And it really shows because in Thor 2 they spend more time on Asgard than on Earth. And actually, the tone of Thor 2 leans more towards the tone of the Avengers movie. Now, the MCU was overseen by Marvel studio head Kevin Feige. He's like the showrunner for the MCU. But, Josh Whedon, who directed the Avengers and has done uncredited work work on almost all the MCU movies, he actually seems to be setting the tone for the MCU universe. I'm excluding Iron Man 3 because, once again, that was more about Downey's swan song for solo Iron Man outings. So, the way the characters spoke in Thor 2 was more jokier, more modern, like in Avengers 1, than in uh, uh, Thor 1. Thor and Loki weren't calling each other dude, but they came close. So, maybe for Thor 3, that's not a spoiler, by the way, that's just obvious. Brianna should come back for at least as the screenwriter. The other thing I would like to point out is the special effects. I found them to be pretty dang cool. Since the Avengers made a billion and a half dollars, the studio can throw just stupid amounts of money at these MCU movies. Now, I mention these special effects because beyond Asgard looking really cool with all the other effects and battles, there's the invasion of Asgard, and the enemy ships bearing down on Asgard, and they slalom between the buildings, and it strongly reminded me of the ending of Return of the Jedi, with the Rebels making their final run of the Death Star. Now, I'm not a huge fan of digital effects, but this little battle sequence of Thor 2 actually carried some thrills, like the ending of Jedi. Oh, also, I didn't see Thor 2 in 3D, thankfully, because it's a dark movie. Hell, the movie is called The Dark World. Oh, And the last thing I'd like to mention is... The love story between Thor and Jane Foster... It seemed a little more believable this time around... But... The longing that Sif... That's Thor's pretty much only female buddy... The longing that she gives off... And the subtle sexual tension between Sif and Thor... Could melt the Bifrost. I know in Thor comics... Thor is supposed to be with Jane Foster... Kind of a Lois Lane Clark Kent Superman thing... But I still think... Sif and Thor would be a great match. So go see Thor The Dark World. It's, it's great entertainment. The effects are grand. The acting is good. When you have Anthony Hopkins, Rene Russo, Chris, Christopher Eccleston as Malekith, and Tom Hiddleston as Loki, you'd love to just see uh, more scenes of, the, of these guys interacting. You'll have a great time on a Saturday night. Oh, and, and man, Kat Dennings is hot. Tell me I can- The Arcade Fire are back with their fourth album, Reflector. Let's take a listen to a track. In 2011, the Arcade Fire won the Grammy for Album of the Year for their record, The Suburbs, a surprise win seeing as the Grammys are 99% of the time out of touch with modern music and artistry. The year before the Arcade Fire won, Taylor Swift won Album of the Year. The Grammys award artists for record sales or are used as a lifetime achievement award for artists whose best work uh, is behind them. They did come close to properly awarding artistry before, with awards for Adele, Outkast, Dixie Chicks, and the U2's The Joshua Tree. Now, since no one in the quote-unquote mainstream knew of the Arcade Fire before the Grammys, even though they were selling out huge venues and were everywhere, like SNL, Letterman, Coachella, their moment in the mainstream limelight was brief, and then people went back to listening to Taylor Swift. This meant the Arcade Fire were able to float back into the indie world and not worry about the pressures of the follow-up album. Now, was The Suburbs the best album of the year for the year at one? Sure, pretty much anything The Arcade Fire does is wonderful. Now, yeah, because even their weak material is better than most bands' best material. Shine down. <clears throat> Go back. <clears throat> was The Suburbs The Arcade Fire's best album? Nah. No it will probably always be their first album, Funeral. Of the three albums the Arcade Fire had released to that day, The Suburbs was their weakest. It had a couple of excellent singles like Ready to Start and Month of May. Those will always be played in concert, but as a whole, the album was weak. At 64 minutes, it lost steam around the 40-45 minute mark. I could never listen to it all the way through. I think the album's inspiration the suburbs that brothers and bandmates Wynn and Will Butler grew up in was not enough to fill an entire hour. Now, uh, here we have Arcade Fire's Fire's latest album, actually a double album, clocking in at 76 minutes, Reflector, with uh, a K instead of a C. Oh, oh man, oh wait, it's 76 minutes? It's longer than their weakest album? Oh man, will this bore us to sleep? No. No, no, no. This is some of the strongest material as a whole the Arcade Fire has released. Let me put it this way. The title track and first release single, Reflector, is the fastest seven and a half minute song I've heard all year. The album's roots are based in a trip band members Wynne Butler and his wife Regine Kassinj took to Haiti. And Wynne was influenced by the uh, Haitian native style of music, rah-rah music. Also, Wynne cites the 1959 film Black Orpheus as an influence. Um, Orpheus was a musician, poet, and prophet in ancient Greece who had the ability to charm all living things, even stones with his music. He's also known for his attempt to retrieve his wife, Eurydice, from the underworld and his death at the hands of those who could not hear his divine music. Uh, uh, This is covered in the songs Awful Sound, O Eurydice, and it's never over. Uh, oh, Orpheus. Also, the album's artwork features an image of Rodin's sculpture of Orpheus and Eurydice. And, wait, wait, and finally, Wynn also found inspiration in Soren Kierkegaard's essay, The Present Age. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I had a look up what The Present Age was, and when I read it, I don't know how it works into the album, but hey, you know what? Whatever get those creative juices flowing, go nuts. So now with all these uh, different influences used to make the album, the most notable influence uh, and supposedly has the least amount of influence according to the band and the producer himself, James Murphy of LCD Sound System. Now even, uh, even though both the Arcade Fire and Murphy say that Murphy came in towards the end of the recording of this album, there is a strong LCD Sound System influence on this album. The songs in this album, even the 7-minute songs, are poppy and snap along with a uh, minimal electronic beat to them. If you listen to Reflector, then any LCD sound system album, you could consider them cousins. The technoish sound is uh, present in the first single, Reflector, and the song "Flashball Eyes. Actually, all the songs, even the slower ones, are full of life. You could pick a song at random and snap your fingers or tap your toes with the infectious grooves of this album. I also want to point out that, alright, I've said this before, and I'll probably be saying this for the next 10 to 20 years, most indie bands early on might have been heavily influenced by the Velvet Underground, but seriously, since the early 80s, I think more bands have taken more influence from the Talking Heads, or they've just flat out ripped them off. Looking at you, clap your hands, say yeah. The rah-rah music and the carombeam beats and tempos call, calls back to the Talking Head, Talking Heads album, Remain in the light. So, with all these uh, ingredients in the pot called Reflector, you end up with a three and a half star hearty meal of indie rock. Are they still indie after winning a Grammy for Album of the Year? <laughs> when Butler said the band was originally aiming for a short album but ended up with a double album. He's quoted as saying, Uh oh, I think we screwed up making a short record. <laughs> Splitting it over the two halves enables you to get into the, into the different worlds of the records. I take away uh, from that as you don't have to listen to the album in its entirety. It's not like uh, Pink Floyd's The Wall. I listen to Reflector all the way through, and it does drag uh, if you listen to all 76 minutes, but I don't think the Arcade Fire intended for the listener to do that. So go pick up Reflector. You'll be listening to one of the best albums of the year. Maybe not Grammy-worthy, but what does the Grammy know? Last year, they gave Best Dama of the Year to Mumford & Sons. (laughs) Grammys. Support money, not art. 20 years in, and on their 11th album, Korn still grinds out angry, anthemic metal for sad and angry teenagers who still haven't discovered Minor Threat or The Misfits. Let's take a listen to a track from their latest album, The Paradigm Shift.
1: Cause things inside are doing fine I don't ever wanna multiply Cause deep inside I'm not qualified
0: Now this needs to be said before we continue. We're going to be talking about the band Corn, not a real musical band. Yes, I'm one of those people who does not take Corn seriously at all. <laughs> this is the band that tried to make "Nick Nack Paddywhack Give a Dog a Bone" angry and <laughs> angry and meddly. So remember, we're talking about Corn in their Corn universe. Okay, so all right. So, the paradigm shift brings the return of founding guitarist Brian Head Welch uh, back to the band since leaving the band after the 2003 album Take a Look in the Mirror. His return, um, yeah, really makes no difference from their other albums, so let's move on from that. Now, as silly as it is, actually, Korn has had a pretty epic run. Uh, So, you know, pretty much anyone under the age of 50 can name one Korn song. I've always gotten a kick out of Adidas. Now, Korn had its peak in the late 90s, early 2000s. They won a Grammy Grammy, for metal, performance, and uh, music video in 2000 and 2003, respectively. Now, the main reason Korn never really had any real respect beyond their diehard fans is that they write angsty lyrics that even Trent Reznor would tell them to grow up and get over it. Korn made famous not the new metal sound, which is what they are usually categorized as, but the angry, angsty, because, you don't get me, stop picking on me, lyrics, like in their songs Clown, Faggot, and Blind. And the, no daddy, don't touch me, lyrics, with songs like Daddy and Shoots and Ladders. Now, lead singer-songwriter Jonathan Davis has had issues with drug abuse and depression, you know, the usual checklist of why you might be a sad and angry teenager, and he found his release through the band Corn. Now, Teen Anx makes great fodder for metally songs, but... On top of just some crappy lyrics, the music from Korn has always been not metal enough to get, you know, like Slayer or Terror fans on board. And um, also, as much as <laughs> as Korn says they're keeping it real, when they brought on the Matrix producing team, known for producing and writing songs for Britney Spears, Avril Lavigne, and Jason Mraz, yeah, they gave up on keeping it real, yo. Now their albums have sold hundreds of thousands. But like supposed Miley Cyrus fans, I can't ever find a person who actually owns one of their albums. Now, their last album, The Path of Totality, I found kind of interesting, though, in a corn way. At that point, guitarist Head and drummer Dave Severia had been kicked out of the band. And, you know, from what you read in the news, you know, pulled together from clips or whatever, it mostly led back to the remaining band members just being dicks to Welch and Severia. So, now an official trio after 15 years, what are the remaining Corn guys to do? Well, alright, I'll always give Corn this one props. Even in the real music world, they've always had a strong bass line. Their bass is on equal footing with the guitars, where in most crappy radio pop-rock bands, they let the bass fall into the background. Reginald Fieldy Arzuza bass could always be heard as clearly as Jonathan Davis' bagpipes. So, with the path to totality, Korn brought in the latest big name producers. And since it was 2011, electronic music was the latest trend. So, they brought in Skrillex, Noisia, Excision, and other EDM producers. Davis was quoted as saying, I want to trailblaze. Okay, I'll I'll do it normal. I want to trailblaze. I want to change things. I want to do things we're not supposed to do. I want to create that's different, create art that's different, and not conform to what's going on. We didn't make a dubstep album, we made a Korn album. All right, I'll give them this. It was interesting for as far as corn albums go now, with the paradigm shift, are they going to keep to that new get it new 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 style <laughs> okay. no, no, they're not. Guitarist James Monkey Schaefer is quoted as saying about the paradigm shift. The new music is inspired by our issues album or even untouchables that era. It's a little more melodic and a little more aggressive at the same time. Head added. The end product is a really good mix of old corn mixed with some new elements. It's got a fresh new corn 2013 sound. No, <laughs> actually, no, no, it doesn't. It's actually a huge step backwards for corn. Gone is most of the dubstep EDM sound, and also gone is the uh, strong bass line. Now, corn has been touted over the years to have influenced many bands that came after them ranging from the god awful to the downright shitty with bands like Cold chamber, linkin park, breaking benjamin, otep, crazy town, Hoobastank, shine down, flyleaf and drowning pool. You know, the type of music you might find on your local high school football player's iPod. Oh, corn <laughs> is also the reason there was is limp biscuit. Corn is kind of John McCain to limp biscuit's Sarah Palin. So uh, the paradigm shift is filled with stylus modern rock that those bands that I just listed are now churning out. The lead single, Never Never, is more or less a breakup song that could have easily been released by Shinedown. The rest of the album is full of Davis's angry, angsty lyrics like in the song Punishment Time. I'm walking on a razor blade, careful not to cross the line, every little step I take, it's punishment time. Now I'm getting to the end of the blade, slipping to the other side, Every little step I take, it's punishment time. Okay, seriously, Johnny, you're 42, married with kids with a successful rock band. Who's still picking on you for wearing black eyeliner and a kilt? So, as corn albums go, this is a one and a half star album. Thankfully, they keep the song short to about three to four minutes, but it doesn't matter. The last few songs just muddle into one generic rock song with some grinding guitars and barely audible bass. And now we return to the real music world. Playbells returned with their third album, Bitter Rivals. Let's take a listen to a track. Slaybells consist of duo Derek Miller on guitar and production, and vocalist Alexis Krauss. Jason Boyer is a touring member on guitar, while the rest of the music is pre programmed synth beats. For live performances, it's just the duo, sometimes the trio, and a wall of speakers. Very Pantera esque. Slaybells has pretty much been off and running from the start with their dance punk style of dance beats and grinding guitars. This is actually a pretty easy album to review. I'm going to say this up front. I very much like Sleigh Bells. It's just that over three albums now, nothing has changed. And you know what? That's the most impressive part. It's the same style, but incredibly uh, listenable. Kind of like uh, ACDC. Sleigh Bells has a specific sound they love and have been able to make it sound fresh and new over three albums. You can more or less take one song from one album and place it in another album and not really notice a difference. Is that a bad thing? Well, not if, not if you're ACDC or Sleigh Bells. Do you like their sound? Well, then get this album. Are you new to Sleigh Bells? Well, then get this album. Should you get their old albums after getting Bitter Rivals first? Well, that depends on how much you liked it. If it 100% won you over, well, then yes. If you're on the fence about it, listen to the other albums at least once. You know, because now remember, nothing changes, but yet in a good way. I'd like to talk about the lyrics on Bitter Rivals, but I'm gonna say it: I have no idea what Krauss is talking about in her lyrics. To me, personally, they're just too random. But the other thing is too: Kraus only sings in two styles—breathy to the point of inaudible, or like you're listening to her on the receiving end of a walkie-talkie. There's so much static that it's almost inaudible. So it, it almost—you know—it doesn't matter what she says if you, you know, can't understand her. So in the end, like, other, like the other albums, Bitter Rivals get three stars. All of their songs make you want to dance, or at least, you know, nod your head. Derek Miller is a talented musician, pretty much creating the entire Sleigh bell sounds, but one of these days, Krauss is going to have to sing so that we can understand her. But for now, because uh, Sleigh Bells is a dance first, rock second, and like most dance songs, the lyrics are secondary, secondary to shaking your ass, so it works. ACDC never really needed to change their sound because you could understand Bond Scott or, or Brian Johnson. Sleigh bells could become stagnant, albeit the danciest stagnation you've ever heard. So what do you do? Eight years after exploding on the music scene like a confetti cannon, Panic! at the Disco releases their fourth album, Too Weird to Live, Too Rare to Die. Let's take a listen to a track. With only two of the four original members left, Panic at the Disco still wants to get you to dance-slash-rock. From the start, Panic at the Disco seemed doomed to fail. Originally formed in Las Vegas, playing Blink-182 cover songs, they branched out into original music, and from there, their rocky career path began. Focusing all their time on their band, the guys dropped out of high school or college. Through blind luck and chance, the guys on a whim sent a link with their demos to Pete Wentz, of Fall Out Boy, who made them the first band he signed to his vanity label, Decadence Records. So with three demo songs and zero live performances, these guys were going to be marketed as the next big thing. They lucked out again when their debut album, A Fever You Can't Sweat Out, turned out not bad, and it went platinum. They next took to the road. I caught them on their first tour. Uh, The band put on a cabaret circus style show. You know, dancers, mimes, goofy shit like that. They also had that god-awful band, the Dresden Dolls, open for them. I don't know what happened to them. Thank thank God they're gone. I was backstage talking with the dancers when you could hear the guys from Panic at the Disco running around being pretty embarrassingly immature. The best way to describe them is those theater kids from high school who don't know the difference between what's acceptable funny on stage and in reality. Panic might have had some decent musical chops, but they had a lot of growing up to do and grow up fast and hard they did. The following years for them consisted of mixed responses to their albums Pretty Odd and Vices and Virtue, accompanied by drug use and bandmates leaving. It almost seemed like they were going to break up, but lead singer Brandon Urey and drummer Spencer Smith soldiered on. Now, a big attention-getter for the band is the style changes from album to album. Fever had a cabaret sound, Pretty Odd, a Beatles sound, and Vices and Virtue... Um, I guess it was a radio rock sound. What does too weird to live, too rare to die bring? Well, thankfully, the longest title on this album is the title of the album. They dropped that childish, super long names for their songs, like The Only Difference Between Martyrdom and Suicide is Press, Co- Press Coverage. Having literary titles alone uh, doesn't, didn't make their childish lyrics more thoughtful or mature. It just showed them trying too hard to be clever and smart. Too Weird to Live actually brings you songs that Fall Out Boy rejected. Brandon Urey here sounds like a knockoff of Patrick Stump, which makes no sense because Patrick Stump's whiny yelp gets grating after a few songs. Yep, the melodies, the lyrics, the vocals either sound like Fall Out Boy, or if they had just a little more keyboard, they could have been Cobra Starship songs, or worse, just generic radio rock. Brandon Urey is trying to grow up here, and a lot of the songs deal with regrets. Most of these regrets are about how he's treated girls. Treated, mind you. He's married now, and I think the song The End of All Things, due to his lyrics, is about his wife. And his wife must be a great girl to keep him a one-woman man because he compares his love of the ladies to an addiction to cigarettes in the song Nicotine. But does it really matter what he sings about, be it girls or his hometown of Las Vegas in the song Vegas Lights? Because if you want to hear that Fall Out Boy sound... Go listen to Fallout Boy. Panic at the Disco got its start playing Blink 182 cover songs, but if they formed today, they'd be playing Fallout Boy cover songs. This is seriously a one star album. It's well produced, and the multitude of instruments used on this album is nice, but to what end? Brandon Urey writes covers, not originals. Pushing 30, still acting 17, pseudo-pop-punk asshole, I mean princess, as she proclaims, a lot. Avril Lavigne is back with a machine manufactured, I mean, sorry, from her heart and life experiences self-titled album. I'm so sorry, but let's take a listen to a song. Once again, I'm, I'm so sorry to put you through that. Hopefully that's the most you'll hear of her, excluding accidentally turning her on on your car radio. But why would you be listening to Radio Disney? Or hearing it being pumped into your local mall? If Avril weren't born, she would have been made in a recording studio. On this latest album, there are 10 producers, not including Avril, who is listed as the executive producer. These studio spangalis polish the song turds she composes into ear candy more sugary than pixie sticks. Now, even with ten captains at the helm, we're supposed to believe Avril's personality comes through, which has been described as punky because she flips off the camera or puts pink streaks in her hair, but in actuality, she's just a spoiled middle-class girl. Also, Avril knows she's thin and pretty, so no matter how stupid she looks or acts, she knows guys will want her and girls will want to be her. This album starts off with the lamest anthem of the year. Avril declares she's rock and roll on the song Rock and Roll. Now, if you have to say you're rock and roll, you're not. (laughs) The rest of the album is full of songs about love or heartbreak or being 17, like the song 17, even though Avril is 29. I can't believe Taylor Swift is actually showing more maturity than Avril. Yes, Taylor Swift did write a song called 22, but she was 22 when she wrote it. Now I know I'm not Avril's target audience, which is any 15-year-old with cash to burn, or anyone over 15 who just doesn't care what they, what they listen to. Even though Avril declares, she loves to declare, that she writes all of her own songs, in the credits, it took six writers and five producers to say how independent Avril is on her song, Rock and Roll, including her husband, yes, Chad Kroger of Nickelback. They even share a duet together, Let Me Go. Oddly enough, a breakup song. Chad is credited on 8 of the 13 songs, and while they don't sound Nickelback-ish, which I guess is okay, there's also a cameo by Marilyn Manson on the pretty pervy song, Bad Girl. Actually, here, wait, wait. Avril Lavigne albums have three types of songs. One, some sort of rebellion song, which actually just makes her look like an asshole, two, sappy love ballads, three, some weird-ass jailbait song, like Bad Girl, which is even weirder because she's not jailbait, she's 29. And also, with those jailbait songs, if she writes those songs, she's an idiot. The lyrics are just horrible, but if she lets some 50 to 60-year-old record producer write them, she's even a bigger idiot because she lets these creepy guys write their nasty sex fantasies about her here are some lyrics from the song Hello Kitty let's play truth or dare now we can roll around in our underwear how every silly kitty should be gross if a dude wrote that and let's be friends forever I want to do everything with you together come and play with kitty and me gee I wonder what kitty is now, there's nothing wrong with being a powerful female. The listening audience loves him a good diva or princess, as Avril likes to declare that she is. But when I say diva, the first thing that probably comes to mind is Beyonce, which is, I don't think Avril is aiming for that level. Plus, um, she can never attain that level too, because she's not, you know, elegant, sexy, or has a strong enough singing voice. Avril wants to be spunkier and a little more hard edge. But the listening audience already has a spunky, heartfelt rocker who can sing. Her name is Pink. Avro will always be a poor woman's Pink. Avro's self-titled album gets a half-star. Seriously, that is it. I'm giving I'm giving it that just on production value alone. Now let's go listen to Pink. Come. Out with her latest album, Prism, Katy Perry deals with her divorce from actor-comedian Russell Brand. Let's take a listen to a track.
1: Boy, you make me feel Before we go higher and higher, I feel like I'm already there. I'm walking on air tonight. I'm walking on it. I'm, I'm walking on
0: air tonight. From the start, Katy Perry said this album was going to be about her divorce from Russell Brand. Which means in prison, we're going to get a darker Katy. Well, not corn darker, but. Darker for Katy Perry. The album is about as dark as sitting in the shade under a tree on a sunny day darker. The album is obviously divided into two parts. The first seven songs are in the frame of Katy's girly, girly, girly power. The first single of the album sets the tone for these first seven songs. Now, I know you've heard the single roar because you have ears. And either you've turned on a TV or radio, or, you know, more or less, you you stepped out your front door. If the song were playing to ad nauseum before the release of the album, it wouldn't have lost some of its punch as being a fun, upbeat, feel-good song. Yes, it's at Disney level, but a really good Disney level, like songs from The Little Mermaid or Beauty and the Beast. And And because it's pretty much asexual in its lyrical content, it's okay to be a guy and sing along with it. And sing along you're supposed to. Especially with like the windows down, road tripping to a party or the beach. Now there are ten producers listed for this album, including Katy Perry. Yes, Avril had eleven producers on her album, but where Katy's people give you the best Olive Garden meal you've ever had, Avril's people gives you what happens when eleven blind monkeys fuck a coconut. The two driving producers on Prism are Dr. Luke Martin or Dr. Luke and Max Martin. Between these two guys, they've crafted uh, the Billboard Top 10 singles for the past decade. If you've heard it on American Idol, they've probably had their hands on it somehow. Yes, these guys work in radio pop, but I don't care if you're some cigarette-smoking hipster band who just moved to Brooklyn, you would kill to have the ability to write hooks like these guys do. Oh, on a side note, Dr. Luke and Max Martin have produced Avril Lavigne songs, but when your head chef is Avril... Uh, you get a monkey fuck coconut. Now, Prism, the first part, this first seven songs, is a solid three stars. The songs are like dopamine injected right into your ears. They're not breaking ground, they just want you to dance and be happy. What I liked about these first songs is the variance in them. Okay, yes, Roar is famous for copying Sarah Bareilles' song Brave, but you know what, that Song style template has been used by Radio Pop for the, fa- for the past 15 years now. But you know what? <laughs> the truth about Roar and a few other songs is that Katy Perry is copying Katy Perry to get that Katy Perry song. But you know what? It's a happy sound, so you, you kind of let it slide. Where that variance comes in is in songs like Legendary Lovers. Katy and her producers weave in. Bhangra-style music. It's Indian, India-style based music. So, you know, it's kind of a little sitar here and there. The song uh, Birthday is a disco song straight from the 70s that's just been unearthed. On the song Walking on Air, uh, Katie has cited Cece Peniston's Finally and Crystal Water's 100% Pure Love as inspirations for the sound she was aiming for. Uh, The song is described as an Early 90s inspired deep house Euro dance disco cut. So, in other words, (laughs) they were just bringing 70s disco to the 90s. Unconditionally sounds like that Rachel McAdams romance moment. You know, the moment in the movie when she realizes, I do love you and we need to be together. And the music swells. It's corny, but you know what? Damn, it works. The song Dark Horse is just her, you know, rapper duet like California Girls. But supposedly a little darker. Okay, once again, yeah, we're dealing with Katy Perry darker. The next two songs, This Is How We Do and International Smile. I think we're supposed to live vicariously through Katy or at least someone like her because she sings about rich people clubbing and then jet-setting around the world to be a model. Yeah, that's a lifestyle I don't think her average listener has. But, you know, for her tween fans, it's fun fantasy listening. Here at the midway point, the album shifts into ballads. Which isn't so bad, but you know, all that creativity that filled the first half with the style changes and whatnot is almost totally drained. Almost all the songs, the last six songs, are in the same mid-tempo beat. And all the songs are about love lost and regaining yourself. But seriously, for six songs in a row? Now these songs, Ghost, Love Me, This Moment, Double Rainbow, and By the Grace of God might work best parsed out as singles, but one right after the other, they just leave no mark behind. Now yes, the first half just deals with girly power, but at least they spiced up the recipe. But, you know what, on a positive note, Katie's, <laughs> Katie's ballads, they don't reach Avril's monkey-fucked coconut level. That takes a special monkey to fuck that coconut. It's just that Katie's ballads lose their freshness as they go on. The second half of the album gets two stars. So... The two halves put together, Prism gets two and three-four stars. Almost a perfect three if the second half wasn't so wishy-washy. So don't be ashamed. Put the first few singles on your iPod and then put them in your workout playlist or your cruising list. You won't be disappointed because Katy Perry and her producers don't want you to be. Dr. Luke and Max Martin are the endless bowl of breadsticks to Katy Perry's All-You-Can-Eat Pasta Dish because it tastes good, but you can only handle so much. And in three years or so, when Katie releases her next album, I'll be ready for that Olive Garden level of pasta. Out on tour right now, one of my favorite comedians is Christopher Titus. His material about his super dysfunctional family has given him years of comic gold. It even gave him a sitcom on Fox from 2000-2002. Probably one of the best sitcoms about family dysfunction up there with the early seasons of Roseanne and Malcolm in the Middle. Outside of the outrageously funny material his life has and family has given him, Titus is more than just a comedian. It's not just set up payoff, but he's also a great storyteller in the style of Spalding Gray or Bill Cosby. A 5 to 10 minute bit can captivate you as it just breezes along. Also his friendly demeanor makes you relate instantly to his stories of craziness or stupidity. You know, so that you think to yourself, "Uh, oh, <laughs> been there, done that," or you know somebody who has done that. Titus has a special airing presently on Comedy Central titled The Voice in My Head. The show I caught when he came through town was a completely new show titled Angry Pursuit of Happiness. Five comedy shows in, Titus has slowly mixed in his views on the world with his family dysfunction. Titus's non family best bits are about how to protect children in school from insane people with guns. Arm the children, Titus declares, which will keep the children safe from the insane, but also there'll be a drastic drop in school bullying. And why not arm the teachers? Um, yeah, think about it. How nice were you to all your teachers while you were in school? Yeah, so we thought too. And even though Titus's father, Ken, passed away a couple years ago, Ken left behind more than 10 comedy specials worth of dysfunction to let his son talk about, including how Ken was able to still put the fear and screwiness into his own funeral. And also, uh, Titus's own take on his own funeral kept the audience laughing and laughing, especially his final video testament to his wives and children. <laughs> Christopher Titus is out on tour right now. Check out his website to see when he's coming to your town. And in the words of that immortal bard, Samuel J. Snodgrass, as he was about to be led to the guillotine, make them laugh, make them laugh, don't you know everyone wants to laugh? Ah, ah. My dad said be an actor, my son,
1: but be a comical one, they'll be standing
0: in lines for those old honky-tonk monkey shines. Now you could study Shakespeare
1: and be quite elite. And you could charm the critics and have nothing to eat. Just slip on a banana peel, the world's at your feet. Make them laugh, make them laugh, make them laugh. make, make
0: them laugh. everyone i'd like to thank you for downloading or streaming this episode of media riot next episode will bring you new album reviews from the red hot chili tannas imagine tannas Tana at the disco tanna's chemical romance and Tana and the machine media riot is an illinois production and we will see you next time bye now